As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The discussion about when the best MotoGP era was is always something that's going to go on in bars and between friends and between friends when they're sat on the side of a racetrack wherever they are in the world in whatever language it may be. So what we thought that we'd do today with our podcast is is have a chat about, well, which was maybe not necessarily the best era, but the depth of field between each year of MotoGP. That goes back now 20 years. So we've got Val, Simon and myself, Toby, together to talk about this. Val, um, it's something that you wanted to talk about. Just have a quick precis of where you want to go in the next hour. The part of the perception of Moto MotoGP that has interested me for a while is I think there is... To use a very weird, almost political term, there is like the top guys are liked, but there's a, a lack of, I would call it legitimacy, but not necessarily in that sense that there's nobody's perceived as aliens. And I think there's still the over, overlying perception, underlying perception that guys like Mark Marquez, Casey Stoner, Danny, Danny Pedrosa, obviously Valentino Rossi have sort of earned their legacy right away and earned their status as the the very top dogs right away because of how the series was. Whereas the current uh, front runners, you would take uh, Fabio Pecco, Joan Mir, Aleish, obviously now, have all come into the front and come into the front as like very definite title contenders. Basically, the very second Mark Marquez got himself broken at the start of 2020. So there was no traditional succession there was no highlander there can be only one moment beheading if you like because marquez beheaded himself yeah fabio Cartararo is the one who was closest of this new group to get a, a full-on one-to-one victory duel which wasn't season long but it was i think two maybe three races where he went toe-to-toe with mark and it was his rookie season but he came off second best in those duels he did not win a race until, well, he his first race win was the race where where Mark uh, where Mark got injured. So there's this there's this interesting situation. I thought it would be it would be interesting to see how in our mindsets as people who cover MotoGP, the the very top of the current grid compares to what we've had in the MotoGP era over the years, and also the rest of it which is, I think, a, a totally different topic and a totally different set of considerations. Simon, do you think that it's lesser nowadays than the names that Val has just rattled off? I actually think that it's the complete, almost the complete opposite of the past. The problem isn't that we've we've got no none of these supreme talents, none of these guys who are so good, but it's that we've got such a stacked grid that it's actually quite hard to stand out as a real talent. Um, I think that we've we've got you know nearly every rider in the world on the the MotoGP grid at the minute is a world champion. It's a really really close time to be a rider. Uh, the bikes are super super close as we've seen from basically all six manufacturers fighting for wins this year, and it means that there's not that that step that there was you know back the era that Val mentioned the 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 sort of the original 
four aliens era, if you had one of six bikes on the grid, it was a huge step difference from everyone else. Whereas that's not really a thing now. So what we've kind of done is we've we've got rid of paid riders paying to be there. We've stacked the grid with great bikes. We've jammed it full of talent. And as a result, no one can stand out as as truly excellent among it. The regs have got a point to to play in this as well, haven't they? I mean, the aero discussion is is quite rife at the moment. It's difficult to overtake, particularly in the middle latter part of the race. That seems to be the the vibe of 2022. Um, but there are still three world champions on the 2022 grid: Quattararo, Mark Marquez, and Juan Mir. Um, we, we we need to be careful not to fall into the trap of oh well, Mir's championship wasn't kind of normal. You know, it's still a world champion. Um, maybe we've just been so used to Valentino winning, Mark winning uh, numerous times, Lorenzo winning numerous times. And we've just got into that that kind of thread of the last 15 years. And now it's all a bit random. It wasn't a normal championship in the sense that it was it was shorter than the the current modern length, but it doesn't actually, like if you compare it to the early 2000s, it's just a couple of race short of the 16. So it's it's perfectly representative in that sense. I think the only, people like to talk of the of the COVID times and the COVID atmosphere of being weird, but I don't, I don't really think that's ever a reason to really put any sort of asterisk on any sort of championship. I think in Mears, in Mears case, Mark's absence is the big question mark talking point. What how that season would have gone and would John Mir be a world champion right now if Mark Marquez didn't break himself at the very start of the season. And my gut feeling will forever remain that no, he would not be. But that's not necessarily, that's not me passing a judgment on Mark's current quality relative to Juan's current quality, even if Mark wasn't injured. It's just that at that point, Mark was something else entirely. And mm. Juan didn't have the perfect season. He picked up, what, like 13 points in the first three races before he won one race. We all know that Mark would have won more than one race that season, more than two, probably 10. So that's, you know, here's a here's a stat that I, I find really interesting to to support what Simon says. I've, I've looked through the every season of the MotoGP era to see how many MotoGP race winners were on the grid each given season. And we're at 14 now, which is more than... It's wild. Yeah, it's like two thirds. We were at 16 last year. So we've lost Petrucci and we've lost uh, Rossi. Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) You could not. Do you you regularly call him Jesus Christ? Because a lot of people do. (laughs) In Italy, that's pretty much what he's known as. (laughs) And you could not, you could not get more different to, let me see, what year was this? 22, 21, 20, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 2014. There were six race winners on the grid. Mm. So Rossi, Lorenzo, Pedrosa, Marquez, Hayden, Dovizioso, six people. That is n- it's not a lot, isn't it? I, I, and it? Two of those people had won three races between them. Yeah, it's crazy. It's 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 crazy how much you know the top down changed. And I think in that sense, we would be doing those guys a disservice to say that that grid was weaker than this grid because, as Simon has pointed out, it's it's the quality of the machinery available, it's the quality and the the development of the teams in existence. But it's also it just points to a to a very just a very different world in a very different championship. And ultimately, it does make me think that the modern MotoGP grid, on average, is better. But that's a that's a slippery slope, obviously. You see, I think out of the three of us, I think that I'm the one who supports Quattararo the most. I think he is exceptional, beyond exceptional. I think his 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 style, his grace, particularly last year, he had an off in Assen, obviously. We all know that was, hopefully for him, a one-off. I think he's just exceptional, which in turn lends itself to how exceptional the Alasius Bargaros and the... And the, and the Juan Zarcos are riding to be 21, 58 points behind. Um, we would say, say let, let's parachute a, a Rossi into 2022 from 2003. 
he'd be 60 points ahead, 70 points ahead by now, not 21. Um, but still, Quattararo, you know, he's the only one to ride the Yamaha. He made all the mistakes two years ago. He settled his head over that winter and he got it all sorted last year. Um, I think he's I think he's a four-time, five-time world champion in the making. When you say parachute Rossi, you mean like take Rossi and restart his career no, from 20 no, no parachute Rossi just the 2000 just the 2002 spec Rossi because I'm I'm not so sure honestly because just the the, the advances in physical conditioning and training all that kind of thing the advances in riding style I think to be at the level where the top guys are right now you had to basically walk the path in the same era and that's that's my feeling towards basically every sport so F1, MotoGP, football, whatever, because because of the scientific advancements more than the talent level. Yeah. The level always raises. You see, in the first nine Grand Prix of 2002, Valentino won one eight. Yeah. No, he was, for that era, he was yeah. but, in that, but... Bit of a bike advantage. <laughs> but, but how much of that was because... How much of that was because of the Honda V5, which is something that, yeah. that literally doesn't exist anymore now. There is no more bike advantage, I don't think, on the MotoGP grid. Um, and, and that's the one thing for me that kind of caveats Fabio being an absolute great is that we don't know how good the Yamaha is. We don't know how much of the extra work is being done by him because the other three Yamaha riders are someone who, let's be honest, has to be injured. It's the only excuse for Marbidelli's drop in form. A direct from Moto3 rookie in the form of Darren Bender and someone who's riding around the back to collect his pension. Sorry, Andrea Davizioso. But there's no marker. There's no, you know, there's no judge. It's not like uh, that 2020 COVID season where Quadraro was trading wins with Morbidelli. And you could say, all right, the, the Yamaha thing is pretty good right now because there's another Yamaha to benchmark. But those off. were different packages, though. <laughs> that was, I think... That is I actually, think that's true. Yeah. And this is a complete tangent, but I think historically, these past couple of seasons have really made a strong case for the Yamaha Morbidelli had that season being better than the Yamaha Quartararo had that season. There was some disagreement over yeah. that, but I think... I think historically, we're more confident now in saying the 19 Yamaha was better than the 20 hmm. Yamaha. Uh Send your hate mail to me if if that's if that's out of line. I know Valentino Rossi didn't agree. I definitely remember that. But I I wonder if he's reconsidered now. Probably not, because you know Franco's his guy. Uh, just going back to it, and this is this is sort of another thing that gives me pause. Is during this summer break, I imagine I wasn't alone in dabbling quite a bit in watching World Superbikes, which is somehow a complete antithesis to MotoGP in a lot of ways, but in one way that's very interesting and curious is World Superbikes also has a, a, a fair amount of decent bikes on the grid, but you you flick on every race and it's the same three guys on three vastly different bikes, always out front, uh, duking it out, corner after corner, and there's always some sort of extenuating circumstance if somebody else joins the fight or if one of those three isn't there. It's always Top Rack, it's always Ray, it's always Alvaro Bautista. Always, always, always. And it's so reminiscent of that MotoGP of 2015, 2014, 2012, and the earlier era. And it's it's wild because you don't you don't think that difference of machinery that you associate the early 2000s MotoGP with or the Yamaha Honda early years of the 10s exists in World Superbikes. So maybe that's something you would use to say that there's no, like, in World Superbikes, there's this th these three guys who are clearly just well above talent in terms of talent level. And in MotoGP, that doesn't happen. Even though, obviously, you parachute many of the guys from MotoGP to World Superbikes, they would also be title contenders. I think that's fairly uncontroversial to say. I, I don't know. I think the, the World Superbike grid at the minute, the machinery disparity is actually bigger than it is in the MotoGP grid because th there doesn't seem to be the same impetus in factories to push good quality machinery down the grid and support it properly. Um, there's no one running. There's no one running ZX-10s as good as KRTs. But uh, like Kawasaki, Yamaha and Ducati all have teammates to their guys who are not doing as well. Is, is, is True. Basically True. Not. So, you know, Locatelli, Lowe's and uh, Rinaldi are not, Yeah, are no. rarely True. ever there. 
weekend for a weekend compared to yeah. New Zealand. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is we've. I thought you were going to go down the road of, you know, wouldn't it be great to see Toprak in MotoGP? That's another pub discussion, isn't it, that we can drink many a beer to. Um, it would be great. Um, but again, there's this whole unknown and money and commercialism and people have been bitten making the jump. And, and the thing is, based on everything we've said up to this point, um, if, if we believe that MotoGP is more competitive now because it's harder to pick standout characters... Does that mean that the three guys in World Superbikes maybe aren't as incredible? Does that make sense? I, I, I see as you say yeah. in the past, whenever there's been a, a super close and super open World Superbike feed, does that mean that that maybe Top Rack will come to MotoGP and get his eyes opened a little bit? Yeah, because I know that 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 paddock raves about his talent levels. Um, even the guys he's racing against, even the other team bosses, they genuinely think he's like a, a Mark Marquez level next generation yeah. talent. Um, and I I don't. It's not that I don't see it, but I, I've never seen it proved. I think because he's racing against those two guys and not. I think as as MotoGP ride, riders, we don't quite believe that yet. Like maybe that's a bit of inherent bias. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's just. I mean, I mean, Mark Marquez. Maybe it is Mark Marquez level talent. That's those are heavy words to to throw around. We have. Yeah, I think we have yeah. be, beyond Mark. We have one Mark Marquez level talent on the grid. And that's Fabio. And I don't think Fabio was a Mark Marquez level talent because of what Mark Marquez arrived in MotoGP having already done. I think that's the you know. He won all the way up through the rankings. He won his rookie season. He won his fourth race. Fabio was good, but he's not that good. No, I'm, I'm basing Agreed. it off of I'm basing it off of the Spanish championship before Moto. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's okay, that, yeah, that's yeah, 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 yeah. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep. You heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The other thing about Toprak is he's not running away with the championship at the moment in the middle of 2022. No. He's third in the title chase and he's 38 points behind Bautista who's leading. So if he was that good, surely he'd be 38 points ahead. <laughs> there is an argument for that. You know, Ducati have basically rocked up with a MotoGP bike with the set of lights in the front so they can take it to World Superbikes. Um, so I think there is a bit of machinery disparity there that, that compensates a little bit for that. But yeah. yeah. Kawasaki's still ahead of him as well. Yeah, but you also you also take obviously the presence of Alvaro Bautista is very, very handy because we can actually benchmark Bautista against other MotoGP riders. And I think he's I think it would be fair to say that I don't imagine he's at his absolute prime right now, but I think when he was at his prime, he didn't get the machinery commensurate to his level of talent, which would not have happened if he came in in modern MotoGP. In modern MotoGP, he would have gotten a bike to to show what he's capable of. I vaguely remember an Alvaro Bautista race where, and I don't remember what year this was, but it was it was fairly recent, where he was a works stand-in at Phillip Island, I want to say. And he did exceptionally well. I think he finished fourth or something. He was right in the cusp of the podium or something like that. I think that gave us a glimpse of the career Bautista might have had. And that suggested to us that like, guys like him not getting the, the opportunities that they deserve is maybe selling some of those grids a bit short. But at the same time, you still look at that's only a few years removed from the CRT stuff. And I don't think there's any particularly healthy argument to be made for the CRT riders as good as many of them were 
including one of them who's now a MotoGP title contender. Well done. But on the whole, being as good as what we have in the second half of the MotoGP grid right now. I don't think there's any particular argument. The the Batista race was 18. It was one of his last races in MotoGP, actually. Yeah. Um, Lorenzo got hurt. They moved him up from a Nieto team yeah. and they stuck Mike Jones into... Yeah. yeah. The Mike into, Jones race, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was the, the Mike Jones race. But but he had a... That came off the back of a good run of form as well. He'd been like sort of cracking into the top 10 at that point. I remember writing about how disappointing yeah. it was that he was getting essentially booted out of MotoGP. Yeah. And then suddenly he's on a factory bike and he's, yeah, you know, relatively top level guy. Um, maybe it's it's a question for you, Toby, because you were there at the time. But, you know, what would have been if um, Suzuki had brought the bike that they have now to Alvaro Bautista back in the day? Suzuki had brought Bautista's bike now to when he you know, was riding. If oh, they'd okay. brought... Uh, it would have been illegal. <sighs> Well, it might because it's, you know, control electronics. It's dumber yeah, than those I, bikes yeah, where it I, I, I do and I don't like to cross over eras. Um, who knows? Uh, you know, we, we, we've got an article that we've all added to that's going to come out this week about what we think might happen in the second half of this 2022 MotoGP season. And one of the answers I've written, well, we don't even know what the weather's going to do tomorrow, let alone how somebody's, somebody's going to do by the time they get to Mategi, for example. Um, so, yeah, he... The, the thing I always remember about Bautista is that when he won his 125cc World Championship, he won it brilliantly. But the season before, he was something like, and I haven't got the screen in front of me, 20th in the championship. He went from nowhere to world champion. Something clicked. It just worked. And he knew how to get the winning feeling and whatever. So he's obviously got that at the moment. Uh, I watched the Italian Sky Simoncelli documentary again last night. The one with the subtitles. Um, emotional for me to watch it. Uh, lots of faces, lots of memories. And yes, it just brought back to me how good he was, of course, on a, on a 250. He, you know, he's not stupid. And the fact is that was back in 08 when Simoncelli won the championship in 250. And here he is in 22, still winning and still leading the World Superbike Championship. Fair play. But whatever he did to win that 125 title way back when, it just clicked over the winter, a la Quattararo in a kind of funny way. It just all came together. It, it does seem like it sometimes clicks and then unclicks for Bautista. Remember his first World Superbike season of 70,000 wins in a row to begin? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, true. Immediately. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, the fact that he's capable of that win stretch suggests certainly a, a huge level of talent. But, but also just, you know, going away from Alvaro Bautista, lest this become the Alvaro Bautista podcast, although I'm getting, <laughs> if I'm being honest, an hour on Alvaro Bautista. <laughs> no. Uh, but anyway, um, going away from it, just looking back at, if we don't look at the top guys for a second, if we look at the, at the back ends and just looking through, you know, like 2002, 2008, 2006, whatever, 2013, and then this year, it is... It strikes you how many of the sort of backmarkers is a harsh term. Like it's not supposed to be denigrating. Somebody has to run at the back, and that doesn't mean you're any bad. But I'm, I'm just going to use the word backmarkers. How many of the backmarkers back in the day were guys who very often were in their thirties? Very often were people who came in from World Superbikes or have already done some random season of 500 CC back in the nineties and were returning for a second go after like a ten year gap. Or came from, I think, James Allison, I think, came from British Superbikes. which you World Endurance. Won the championship in 03. Yeah, won champion. the World Endurance Championship in 03. You, yeah. Like, that's absolutely unimaginable right now, right? Like, yeah. we, we cannot think of something like that. We cannot think of a guy from EWC or from British Superbikes coming in immediately. And even the sort of World Superbikes to MotoGP pipeline that used to be really strong going by those years like there's a lot of guys who are quickly transitioning between the two paddocks that's that's basically dead like there's obviously there's the one guy and we'll talk about him more obviously there's top rack who's repeatedly linked to a switch but otherwise if you look back 
at the past, I think since 2017 or something, and we've had like 20 plus new MotoGP riders. You want to guess how many of them didn't graduate directly from Moto2? Go ahead. One, Lorenzo Savadori, who was parachuted in because things were weird at Aprilia. Everybody else came in from Moto2. Everybody else was a Moto2 podium finisher, Moto2 winner, something like that. Everybody. And it's, is that better? I like it's less it's less interesting but I think in a way it is it hints at more more professionalism but also more like uh, specialization if that makes sense like you have to you have to prepare specifically for this very thing you can't rock up in like you can't change paddocks consistently it doesn't seem to it's not easy it's really hard the, the the story from that era that always sort of really nails that home is uh 2013 barcelona when <clears throat> hiroshi ayama crashed and broke his finger Avintia needed a rider to slot in and they literally found a friend of the team bosses who was a 37 year old guy called Javier Delamore that was there as a spectator who normally raced like mid-pack Spanish championship had never rode a MotoGP bike had never rode MotoGP tires he scored a point (laughs) (laughs) I've forgotten that and I commentated on the that, race. That, that, I've forgotten that. That is the story that best reflects the drop in talent that we had back then, right? But even more important, they got their start money. <laughs> they were amazing. Yeah, it, it helps with the grid number uh, a little bit lower, but yeah, that's that's well, yeah. yeah. Now, now let's go back to 06. Let's let's just pick up on what Val was saying about the 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 people coming through from Motor Two. Uh, more recently, in 06, Nicky Hayden came from America. Rossi came through the, the, the GP system, as did Caparossi, Melandri, Pedroza, Kenny Jr., but only into 250 and then into 500. Colin Edwards, straight into MotoGP. From Superbike. Yeah, did test a 500 Honda, but they never raced a 500 Honda. Casey Stoner came into 250 first, went down to 125, went back to 250 and then into the big class. Elias came through the system. Hopkins, straight onto a 500 from America. Vermeulen, uh, World Super Sport Champion, World Super Bike Race winner, and then into MotoGP. Tamada from the uh, Japanese Championship. Uh, Jibbenau came through 250 into 500 into MotoGP. Nakano, 250, 500 MotoGP. Carlos Checa, the whole spread. Dupunier, whole spread. Hoffman, 250. I think he did some 125 system. James Ellison, we've talked about. Troy Bayliss, uh, yeah, world superbike, obviously. Cardoso, pay rider, didn't really set the world alight and you know that was the bulk of that 2006 season still a lot of variety if we had that kind of variety of people jumping from moto america world superbike onto the current grid can you imagine what it would look like yeah you know not really no because it's 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 such a such a different paradigm yeah like we would have we would have uh, um a top rack yeah, on the obviously. grid. We would have maybe Jonathan yeah. Ray on the grid. That's. I mean, this is now. This is gonna. This is gonna be mean to the top Moto America guys. But like, okay, top rack Ray Bautista. They would all hack it in, in Moto MotoGP. I think without too much trouble. I'm not saying they'll be like title contenders or race winners, but I think they they'd all get the job done. But when you go to like as. It's not that the levels of the national championships are like bad or anything, but you're not going to go to British Superbikes or Moto America or IDM Superbike or whatever and get MotoGP riders out of there. Like, and and oh, it it looked a lot more looked a lot more viable back in the day, but it also looked like some of the moves were just weird in terms of in terms of previous previous results. Like, uh, you had the had the Dutchman Van der Gorberg. In in MotoGP, yep. he never had a podium in seventy Moto Two starts. You had uh, Hoffman who came in after a, 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 a fairly strange two hundred and fifty cc record. Like that doesn't. I think the closest you'd get of recent people who have done something like that is would be Quartararo, Nakagami, or Hafish Siarin maybe, or Aleish. Obviously, but Aleish was yeah. a while ago. Aleish was a like 
Yeah, Elish has been there for so long that he, yeah. Yeah. He came up the Hoffman era. He was Hoffman's teammate. Yeah, he fits into that old paradigm of. <laughs> yeah. So, which is all the more, I, makes I, it all the more remarkable I, that he's so good. Well, his real skill is the stay empire, isn't it? <laughs> Clearly. Mm, yeah. The, the thing we, we mustn't forget with people getting rides or drives is it's not just about what they do on the bike or in the car. You know, Van der Gerberg, very marketable held up the ticket sales for the Dutch TT for years. Um, likewise, we had Hoffman as the only German in the top class. Um, yeah, there was a German-run Kawasaki team, so that all helped. It all was hand-in-glove, TV rights, Eurosport German, massive penetration through Germany with a lot of lot of people watching every race. So that was important. It then went on to um, terrestrial TV, so that worked out well for the Germans. So it's a balance. It's a balance. Yes. You know, what, Carlos Checker, you know, he, he was a works... No, sorry. He was a yeah works slash nion semi works factory rider for twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> through all the cigarette money, through the energy drink money, won a world superbike championship, won two five hundred cc Grand Prix brilliantly. Um, great bloke, hugely marketable, and still is to this day. Uh, you know, was never late for any PR appearance. Spoke all the languages. It ticked all the boxes. There's a reason Spanish TV hired him. Exactly. He's still there. Exactly. He's still there. Yeah. So uh, there's a reason that people aren't in the championship who who weren't very good at PR. You know, they've just drifted away because people go, you know, particularly in the cigarette era, particularly in the tobacco era, it, it was it was very important. Well, let, let's look at the 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 ultimate talent, according to many people in the pound, never to have actually amounted to anything because he couldn't get everything else in order. And it's Anthony Gober. Totally. Like that, that totally. just buckets of talent, but his life was a bit of a mess and it never came together as a result. I'll tell you what, we had we had some good parties Poor though. Guy. Bloody hell. <laughs> uh, shows my age, but when you started winding up for that, I was like, oh, he's going to say you know his name now. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think he was that good. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, but yeah, it's just, there is like, I think our the consensus we're coming towards here is that this grid is the best grid, but we've lost something in terms of the eclectic factor, which is honestly, it's it's a bit sad to see as much as we like all the current guys and, and, and as interesting as they genuinely are, but that whole commonality of backgrounds and and the fact that you don't get surprised as much anymore by people who you just don't expect to come in at all. And what I mean by that is, like you go through past MotoGP seasons, and for so many of them, you'll see wildcard riders scoring points regularly, getting on the podiums, uh, winning. I think. Did yeah, he did. Well, it was a replacement, but even so, yeah, 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 I know what you're yeah. saying. Yeah, just that's yeah. just impossible right now. It's just impossible. But you, you, we, we see how really good, really credible wildcard wildcard riders working as test riders right now fare in races. And they're like, okay, they're there to do a different job, but they also they have to be so focused and so prepared. And anytime, like, if they've missed any of the preseason, if they've missed a couple of races, they're never catching up. Like, that was basically that's been Stefan Bradl's whole story for the past three years. Uh, we don't see the heroics we used to see from Michele Pirro in his appearances. I remember. Mika Calio showing up as a KTM wildcard and looking really good against the works riders. But then when he got the seat full time, just a couple of seasons later, he couldn't hack it, more or less. I think that that says something maybe not about the talent level, but about the how finely honed everything is and how obviously you get so tired of MotoGP riders saying that like the grid is so tight and everybody's so close blah 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 because of course you'll say that you'll say your job is hard but it's true it's just obviously true and you can't you just have to be so prepared to hack it it's it's crazy which has put us in this like bizarre situation that we're in right now where there's no underdog in MotoGP if you're the sort of person that likes cheering for an underdog you know the the underdog pairing that we've had for the, the best part of like six years is now fighting for the championship. It, you yeah. know, Alicia Spagaro and Aprilia were the last underdogs in the series. 
Um, and, and, and I, I think it's changing the subject slightly, but that, that maybe takes something away from the whole championship because it's nice to have a few underdogs. And, and then the other thing is everyone in the grid is nice. It's nice to have a few assholes as well. Oh, I've, I've said that for years, Simon. It's, it's, it's nice to have a pantomime villain. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the World Superbike Championship. They're all too nice to each other. They need to hate each other and have a fight yeah, in the press conference like Killy and Foggy at NASA. Yeah. Need a, need a name bit their, of their pigs you know? after each other and then take them to be <laughs> I mean, slaughtered. If, you, if you've read Ray's book, Ray and Sykes were not nice to each other. I mean, it was all... <laughs> no, this yeah, is true. It, was, it wasn't like mm. open conflict, but it was clearly barely hidden animosity and i think right now there's there's more needle there certainly between all the three yeah. of those than there is in in moto gp which mm. it is also important needle is is important but you can't mm. manufacture it so no mm. no what would sorry what is missing uh simon you've touched on it probably without realizing it you know the lack of testing that's being made available to the teams means that the test teams aren't as good now as they used to be. They couldn't go to Mugello and put a groove in the place until it was dark for a week, which is what they used to do in the early days of the MotoGP Ducati. Um, oh, you can't do this. Oh, you can't have that. You can't have that. So they won't have as good a rider because that rider's going, well, I'm only going to do four days a year. I'll go and get a ride somewhere else. Whereas in the old days, you could just parachute somebody in that was pretty handy. You know, think Shinichi Ito on, on Honda or a, a, a Japanese guy in the shape of, I don't know, Kagiyama or somebody or other. But that doesn't happen nowadays. No, so the, the current rules say that a MotoGP team is allowed 120 sets of tyres a season to test with. That, that's the, the way that it's measured, the way that it's restricted, which makes complete sense, actually. But 120 sets of tires spread among, you know, maybe two test riders. Because let's not forget that we know that, say, Suzuki is testing with Sylvain Gantoli in Jerez, but there's also someone else, um, maybe someone like Suda back in Japan, who's testing this stuff before it ever reaches Gantoli. And you can't test MotoGP components not on MotoGP tires. So 120 sets of tires is what realistically 10 days, 12 days of testing. If you want to do a time attack, it's not a lot of track time. I think that Cal Crutchlow was contracted to do 16 days for Yamaha in the season. Um, and, and, you know, like Val said at the earlier in the podcast with Bradle, that's the reason why these guys just aren't up to speed because they're, they're just mm. not doing enough time. I can't see he'll do 16 days, Cal. No, I don't do think so. And, and open a dealership on the other six days. Well, you know? it just means, it means they have spare days, doesn't it? If yeah. you know, <laughs> the bike turns green and the wheels fall off and they need to figure out why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do say quite passionately that I am enjoying motor gp 2022 a lot i'm enjoying the fact that as you say simon alicia spargo is turning around the underdog to be the top dog um there is still a chance that alicia spargo could win this year's world championship just think about that for a minute i don't work in football terms as you do val it would be the underdog of all underdogs winning the the fa cup or the world cup or whatever well the, the they always say leicester I don't think it's quite Leicester. Well, but, Leicester yeah. did it. Even I know that. Yeah, but but it, it let's 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 call it a Leicester, you know. But holy smoke, you know, if Quateraro does drop it a bit, and then this fairy tale comes through, and these little guys from the north of Italy who hadn't even won a race, we need to go through the system and find out somebody who say Espargaro is a world, you know, might be a world champion who only won his race in that first season. In in and the season in which he might be world champion, you know, I, there's a little scenario, but we've got a long way to go yet. Mir Marquez, the, yeah. Sorry, silly me, silly me. There are previous writer examples, but I bet you there's never been a manufacturer that's done it. Yeah, okay, even even better point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet you there's never been a factory that's never won a, a premier class race until they won the title. Can you imagine? Until you go back to like fifties, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Difficult to compare, but. You know, 21 points between them. Oh, dear. I genuinely don't know what way it's going to go. I think that we, we finally saw a little bit of a crack of weakness from 
Quadraro. Let's not forget he's got a long lap penalty to serve this weekend coming at Silverstone that's going to hand Espigaro an advantage again. And, and I genuinely don't know what way this season's going to play out. But more importantly, so far as Aleish is concerned, the thing that's got into Fabio's head over the last four or five weeks is bloody long lap penalty. Piss me off, that has. So he's never really been able to relax during this summer break question. I don't think it'll it'll really, really bug him. I, I don't know. When he was kicking back in the beach in Mykonos, he looked pretty relaxed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the back of his mind, you know, he wasn't impressed with the stewards, nor were the team. Uh, you know, Jarvis, Jarvis put or that... The re- or the rest of the world, Toby, or the rest of yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, even Lynn Jarvis put a, put a <laughs> statement out, didn't he? Uh, yeah. Which kind of <laughs> happens very rarely. So, uh, mm, interesting, interesting. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. So it's easy to reminisce about what life was like and who did what and how and how they got there and whatever. But what about riders who do deserve to be on the MotoGP grid? Uh, Val, you've brought up Top Rack. Who else should be on the grid next year, but probably won't? Yeah, it should be is a, is a, is a strong word because that like there's a lot of riders I really like who I'd really like to be on the MotoGP grid, but I don't know that I would like it to be at the expense of the current guys we have so it's like if it were up to me i'd exp- expand the get the grid to, to 50 bikes but that would be marshalling hell obviously and even 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 moto gp would have to red flag some of those races 44 of them jacatis <laughs> <laughs> oh, the q2 of 20 bikes 20 jacatis in q2 <laughs> Fabio qualifying 20 seconds for winning somehow. Q- no, no, no. Q4. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, I, I think, well, obviously, to, to start again with Top Rack, the whole situation with... There's been like a... I think we've been presuming for a very long time before this year that sooner or later, Top Rack and Razgat Lioglu would be a Yamaha MotoGP rider in some capacity. And... That looks increasingly doubtful for the near future for a variety of factors. One is that the demand from his management that they want a factory bike and a factory seat, not just a factory bike, at for any switch does not appear to be just posturing for a better deal because they've said it a lot. Um, and two, Yamaha no longer has a satellite team to, to put him in. And I just, I think there's a lot of people who don't see and again, this is how MotoGP has changed in the past. You could easily see a World Superbike champion going to MotoGP factory team. I no, I don't. I, that's just does not look possible. Even if Franco Morbidelli is on the hot seat, there will be other MotoGP proven riders who will be ahead in that queue of, of top rank. And the crazy thing to me is that there's always been this assumption that he's going to that he he's demanding a factory bike and it's going to be a yamaha but the yamaha is the bike that would suit him the least in MotoGP. why would you put a guy that rides the way he rides on an inline four that's all about corner speed like he, he should be looking at a ducati or a honda realistically anyway but there's even less chance of going there than there is of going to yamaha um it's i can't help but feel like it all stems from the fact that Keenan Safogli, his manager, got burned so hard whenever he came to be a Grand Prix rider. And and that the whole thing is based on money and not actually on wanting to come to MotoGP. I think that Correct. It, it doesn't make any other sense to me because you don't demand a factory MotoGP bike. You didn't demand a factory MotoGP bike and get it 15 years ago when things were like that, in a factory team at least. And you you there's even less reason to think that you'd be able to demand one now and get it. In four wheels, World Superbike Championship compared with Formula One is actually the IndyCar Championship. Can I call it that? Let's say. So, So you know, the people came over from IndyCar and had a go. Montoya, Villeneuve, Zanardi. 
but they didn't demand necessarily demand that they wanted to go over. Their manager didn't place them over. The bloke who put them in the seat was the bloke who ran Formula One. Uh, he said, right, for two reasons. A, it's box office. And B, it was taking a jewel away from the opposition stateside. That doesn't happen in World Superbike because it's owned by the same people. Well, and also, you know, like that's also changed. You, you, the, the guys you mentioned, Zanardi, Montoya Villeneuve, uh, Michael Andretti, they all got good seats immediately in F1. Yeah. That, yeah. Will, that won't really happen these days because like the, the top IndyCar guys are good, but no F1 team is going to take a No, like really high level F1 team is going to take the punt because it's, it's too different. It's re it really is too different, and that's that's simple as. And you have to you have to like test them a ton to have an idea, and you'll you'll still probably be more comfortable with somebody who's done the traditional steps up, much like in, like much like in in MotoGP. Like if if Track was front running in in Moto Two right now, I think there'd be no question. Although if he if he was front running in Moto Two and demanded a factory seat, then I don't know that still probably wouldn't quite fly, but. The other thing is, we are quite, I mean, this is the race MotoGP podcast, so forgive us for being a bit MotoGP-centric, but obviously it's the pinnacle. I think that's fair to say World Superbike fans should not be mad when people say that MotoGP is higher level because that's just, that's not, doesn't mean that the World Superbike title is meaningless. Just, you know, something has to be the absolute top. And I think any fair comparison between the two grids and the two levels of competition I think MotoGP comes out ahead. But that doesn't mean you have to go to MotoGP at any cost. And in Top Rack's case, having watched some of the World Superbike races during during the summer break, he's having a blast out there. Like, he might not win this year's title, but mm. that looks like a lot of fun. He's out front every time, dueling the same guys, uh, sending it down the inside over and over again. That's... He's going to get more exposure and mo more prestige like this than running for 10th on a, I don't know. I was going to come up with a random satellite Yamaha name, but there's no VR46. Yeah, no, that makes no sense. So I don't know. On a random satellite bike. The, the, the point that has actually kind of escaped me until you just said that, Val, but is the perfect comparison for all of this, is that if halfway through this point last season in Moto2, if Remy Gardner had demanded that KTM sack Miguel Oliveira to make room for him at the factory team, we would have laughed at him. Yes. But that's essentially the same argument that the guy who's currently third in the World Superbike Championship standings is making of Yamaha versus Morbidelli. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. I'm, I'm not convinced by that. I think it betrays a certain, like, we'll only do it if... if, if you pull out all the stops and otherwise we're good. Yeah. I still say that because Dorna own both championships, they're not going to denude the World Superbike Championship by taking Top Rack out of it. So that's what's different against the Montoyas, the Zanardis, the Villeneuves coming to Formula One. They were two opposing championships and Bernie was stealing their big name from one place to come to another. You know, winner of the Indy 500 goes to Formula One the year after. Uh, you know, it... it it's, a, it's an unwinnable war at the moment to get the people to come over because it's going to denude World Superbike. Which is the way it used to be in the past in both directions. With with big World Superbike names like Edwards, yeah. Toesland coming to MotoGP, but then also World Superbike poaching back names like Biagi. Um, and it's a subject for another podcast, maybe one vetted by our lawyers, but I really don't understand how Monopoly's commissions allowed Dorna to end up owning both series at once. Yeah. Yeah, not now, not now. But but I see your point. For me, that's the telling thing as to why there's not much crossover. Um, if you took Johnny Ray and Toprak out of of World Superbike at the moment, then um, it would be Bautista, and that's it. You know, who knows? Yeah, he'd win every race, basically. Yeah, he'd, and make sure that he won the championship. No, he'd win twenty and fall off from the rest of them, but win the championship. After after six rounds of the championship, he'd have double the points of Andrea Locatelli in second. Yeah, of course. Who's currently in fourth. That's, that's how that championship works right now. And, you know, there's there's a certain level of fun to that. And I can see why being one of the the three 
hardest guys in their appeals. Like, I can absolutely see that. Even if it's not the glamour and glitz of, of MotoGP. Who else would you put into uh, 23 grid? Um, I mean, so the current Moto2 points leader, I think, on countback is Vietti. But what's happening with Celestino Vietti is I think his very good start to the Moto2 season made a lot of people think that he was a shoe-in for 23. But it's still, like, there were some deceptive things going on with, with how his season started. Not the least the many, many bikes crashing when Ren came out and handing him an easy second place, I think, was it? In a race that was going to be otherwise much, much harder. Um, so he's, I think he's been good, but he's not, I don't think he's been championship leader good, which is why I also don't think that it's quite MotoGP 2023 time for him. Like, I think for all the parties involved, for Vietti, for Marini Bezecchi, who are occupying the VR46 seat, because obviously Celestino Vietti is a Valentino Rossi protege, much like those guys. So I think for all parties involved, waiting for a bit there makes a lot more sense. But I think we'll, we probably, at this point, we'll probably expect him on the grid at some point, because he's been good enough. Um, the guy he's joint championship leader with is Augusto Fernandez, who I don't really see a path to MotoGP for, which is weird because we've not been in this situation for a bit where somebody who I think probably is the favorite to win the Moto2 title right now, maybe, is doesn't look like he's going to be on the Premier Class grid anytime soon. So yeah, Augusto Fernandez is, I would, I think he's done just about enough, assuming his second half of the season is reasonably tidy. He's admittedly on a good package. He's had good Moto2 packages for a bit and not always done quite enough with them. But there's, I think, an, there's, I think a level there. There's, I think, a MotoGP level there that would be in demand if we had not had the Suzuki Mageddon and lost the two extra rides on the grid. I disagree, actually. I, I can't see a world where Fernandez ends up in the MotoGP grid. Even in a normal, I, I think that... Ah, even in a normal, okay. I, I think, yeah, I think that he... The fact that he's on an IO bike actually works against him rather than for him. True. Because while others have got, ended up on an IO bike, won the championship and went to MotoGP and everyone said, oh, that's the, you know, that's the bit that they needed. That's the bit that was missing. I think it's almost like there's a sense that that's starting to wear off now. And it's a case of, oh, yeah, of course, he's on an IO bike. Yeah. Because for every for every sort of guy that does well on that bike, there's another that only does well on that bike. Mm. It's a bit like the Leopard Moto three thing. <laughs> um and I yeah, I, I just I don't know. I think that he's been around long enough that his kind of he's kind of pegged as a Moto two rider now and that's yeah, especially if we get into the second half of the season and the the sort of the the start of the run of form that we saw from Pedro Acosta continues. But to be fair, I think he's he's been fairly impressive in how he's taken care of Acosta so far. I think he's been, you know, I expected Acosta to be closer to Fernandez, but I expected both of them to be more dominant because last year those two IO bikes were with Remy Gardner and Raul Fernandez, who absolutely dominated the whole championship. Nobody could touch him. Yeah, and that's that's going to be playing its part against, I think, not only Augusto, but even Pedro a little bit. So I agree. I agree that there's a, that is the, the big complication for Fernandez, but it's still, it's still weird to have a Moto2 title contender with no real obvious MotoGP rumors or prospects. And also, even like if Augusto Fernandez is the new Tom Luthi, even Tom Luthi made it to MotoGP once. He wishes he hadn't. But yeah, it did happen. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, he's the he's the obvious one. Ayagura, who's one point behind both Fernandez and Vietti, will probably be on the MotoGP grid next year, so he doesn't mm. doesn't quite yeah. qualify. Does this does this mean a return to winning two fifty cc championship, Moto two championship, time and time and time again, and build your reputation that way? We touched on this a couple of podcasts ago, didn't we? About Max Biaggi. You yeah. know, he won four on the trot, three for Aprilia, one for Honda. Um, yeah. But in the in his pomp, it was oh well, he's just going to stay with Aprilia. Well, of course, he's going to stay in two fifty. That's it. 
And only at the end, in inverted commas, did he go to the big class. Uh, you know, four on the trot. Somebody won four Moto2 championships on the trot nowadays, there'd be uproar. Bizarro won two, and that was weird already. Yeah. There's three problems with that, as I see it. One is that I know of 125cc riders in the late 90s, early 90s who were earning seven-figure salaries because cigarette money, and, and that's obviously gone now. Um, the second is Moto3's ridiculous age limit. Um, you can't have three equal classes whenever the riders most suited to one of those classes gets kicked out at 28. And the 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 third one is... I've gone completely blank. Okay, well, while you think about it, for me, the third one is... Um, it's been a long day. Viaggi was riding an Aprilia, but Fernandez is not riding a KTM. He's riding... Because there's no KTM in, in Moto2. There's only, you know, it's it's much more of a spec-ish series. So there's no, there's n- not going to be an incentive for KTM to have a dynasty in Moto2 when they don't have a bike in Moto2. They only have their colors in Moto2, if that makes sense. Same for everybody, apart from speed up. Yeah. Yeah, but it, a manufacturer, yeah. I think Val means, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> Mm. Bosco Scuro Dynasty Bosco Scuro can't keep a rider for more than five races yeah. they're not going to build a dynasty that way rider would win a title and then get shelled yeah. five races into the next season for the next champion oh. um, obviously the the other guy I think who's in a in a sort of sim- interesting situation who it's just had such a weird Moto2 career but who I think people regard as having MotoGP potential is uh, Aaron Kinnett who is having a really strange Moto2 season and has been hurt in a car crash very recently to add to all sorts of calamities that he's had during the season. I think talent-wise, he might be ahead of all of them, maybe, or at least, yeah, yeah so that. But I think it, if you had Aaron Kinnett in an injury-free season on an IO bike, even not even an injury freezes a season without injuries caused by other factors as opposed to his own crashes. Um, Cause he broke his wrist in that, that crash in Portimao where race control didn't red flag when the rain came, he had the car crash. If you remove those factors, put him on an IO bike, we'd be sitting around a Gardner season. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's quite possible with more crashes, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, maybe I rolled Fernandez season then. Aaron Kinnett has, I don't think he's won a Moto2 race yet. And yet, um, neither did John Mir when he stepped up. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, he's, I think, the, the other guy who's, I think, suffering a little bit from the logjam. But at the same time, to be really, like, be really a proper overlooked case, he needs to get his house in order, basically stay healthy, stay on the bike. Um, but his time is also, he's probably on the clock with guys like uh, Acosta... Sergio Garcia, Ishan Guevara coming in, who will all be in Moto2 sooner or later and who MotoGP manufacturers will try to get signed through pre-contracts, maybe even before some of them even turn a lap in Moto2. That's the weird sort of place we're in, isn't it? That even if there is a MotoGP logjam, there will still be churn below and people, talented people will lose out as a result. In that case... Is it just as hard for MotoGP management to take the logs out of that jam and put them in World Superbike? Put the Canets in, put the Fernandezes in, because they've only got out of bed since they were seven years old on a mini moto to be in MotoGP. It's an impossible task for Dorna to take somebody from MotoGP, Moto2 log jam back of MotoGP and put them on a World Superbike because there's this perceived shift it's a hard sell the problem the biggest problem with that is that beyond maybe six or eight rides in world super bikes there's no money there's no money that's and, the problem and again that's the problem there's the yeah. problem yeah but you know we've got this embarrassment of riches and total log jam churn call it what you will throughout this podcast um it, it is um it's a massive load of people <laughs> who are very talented age restriction you touched on it simon in moto three that punts people into moto two um aspar he rode in one two five until he was 40 yeah 
uh, battled against Valentino in in mid nineties. Um, <laughs> famous line from Dennis. You'll appreciate this, Dennis Noyes. Uh, after Aston, nineteen ninety seven, great finish. Valentino won the race. Five people over the line in point eight of a second or something or other, including Aspar. And he said, Aspar apparently after the race to Dennis. Oh yeah, I saw him as a kid when he was when he was been in the paddock when he was a little toddler. Jokingly said, "Should have run him over then. It would have been easier." <laughs> <laughs> All in jest, but yeah, <laughs> the dry humour. Yeah, <laughs> say that nowadays, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a strange because I mean, that's just how things work. I. I can't really even blame Dorna or anyone for it because there has to be the dream championship and it c- cannot have 40 bikes. We get like, we'd maybe like 40 bikes in MotoGP. It would be, it'd make our jobs a lot harder. It'd make the media sessions after uh, qualifying and the race is really painful. But does it make the team's jobs easier because they've got a wealth of talent to choose from that maybe they didn't have? In the mid zeros, with you know pay riders coming in because their grandfather owns a sherry house in Areth or something, so it gives them it gives them more opportunities. I don't think they make use of them fully. That's that's sort of my theory because again, the second Yamaha put Fabio on its bike as a last resort and suddenly found out it had a superstar in its hands, like whoops through no forward planning whatsoever just oh this is the guy he just won a moto 2 race let's sign him to a contract oh he's a world champion yeah yeah (laughs) the second that happened i thought every single moto gp team would be like okay let's take 15 moto 2 riders and test them all and see see which of them impresses me maybe one of them is perfectly suited to our bike because of obviously because of limited testing because of all that because of commitments you can't do it but but they are doing it a bit, Val, because Yamaha have got their Moto2 team and they've twigged to to have one kind rather of. than, you know what I mean, you know, rather than pick somebody by pinning the tail on the donkey. Uh, but I'd, I'd run them on MotoGP bikes. That's what I would do. I'd, I'd, I'd lobby really hard for a young rider's test or something like that. Mm, because fair cool. Fair cool. There's no better way to know because the, the specialization of the bikes is so much you just somebody might be three tenths better on one bike than the other and you don't know that yet and only through testing can you really find out and get the idea otherwise you get your ktm you sign an absolute no lose proposition in johan's arco and six months later everyone hates each other and they divorce like how did that happen how do you avoid that you take a bunch of youngsters and you test them and you see who fits the bike that's there's an easy glorious solution to this for for the rest of the season, I reckon that every factory has to run an extra rider in FP1, and you're only allowed to run the same rider three times. Yeah, that'd be mega. So that everyone gets to try everything. Yeah, or during the summer break, you have a MotoGP rookie test, and then you do the same after the season. Well, yeah. Endurance Championship yeah. do it, Formula One do it, just to give people a chance because yeah. there's a lack of testing. Thrashing around Silverstone with two McLaren test teams in different parts of Europe, Silverstone or Monza, whilst the race team is coming back from Manucor, those days are gone. And F1 doesn't really, like it has the same problem, but on a much smaller scale. And it's done the FP1 mandatory outing yeah. thing. It's doing that right now. Obviously, Lewis stood down the other day. Yeah, yeah, for, for Nick DeVries. So, <laughs> MotoGP riders will hate it because they need... Of course they will. They, they, they feel they need every lap. They feel but, missing. Yeah, but MotoGP riders hate all change. Yeah. and Yeah, they're racers. They're all the same. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, I, I would love yeah. to know just how valuable FP1 is to some of those riders. Yeah, exactly. The track surface in FP1 is always garbage. The, the the pace always doesn't really matter. It's do it on a Thursday afternoon. <sighs> well, We're all there. The difficult bit's getting there. <laughs> Simon will not like that idea. Simon wants. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah. anyway. Tell you what, do it on a Friday morning and or do it on a Friday afternoon and have no other sessions on Friday. Problem solved. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, right. That's another one. That's another one. Yeah, a, 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 a weekend timetable <laughs> shuffle podcast. That will be an hour. But um, not if arguably, we can cut it down, Toby. Not if we can cut it down. <laughs> <laughs> arguably, if it can be cut down, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, yeah, an embarrassment of riches. The, the fact is, uh, there's always going to be rose-tinted spectacles being put on when we talk about old uh, things, whether or not it's the 2006 championship, the 2002 championship that saw the debut for Murder GP, or an era that you're particularly fond of. We've all got our favourite years and eras. It, it The rose-tinteds are never going to be far away. But I still say that my expression that I use nearly daily, you know, these are the good old days as well. And that's why we should really enjoy this Quattararo Espargaro tussle over the last nine Grand Prix in 2022. Can you imagine they go to Valencia five points apart, just as Valentino and Nicky did in 06? I don't know how anybody slept that Saturday night. Uh, I hardly did. Uh, it And it turned out to be one of the best days at a racetrack I've ever had um, everything came together um, for the sport for the sport but yeah these are the good old days um, and I hope you agree yeah, absolutely and obviously uh, uh, our listeners if you have a favorite grid that's not 2022 or that is 2022 feel free to to ping us a message because we would Honestly, from from inside, I think it's it's hard to really gauge the idea of how how riders are viewed relatively, especially because if you're in it day in day out, and you get so used to some of the faces and start to forget the others, and also sometimes you're just really young. Like I honestly, I didn't see so much of Valentino Rossi in his prime. So, however much catching up I try to do, I will never get that same experience of just you know. I got that experience with Mark, but I'll never get that experience with, yeah. with Rossi, if that makes You're sense. You're just saying I'm old. Um, <laughs> Always. <laughs> okay, well, send in send in your thoughts to podcasts at the-race.com. That's the email. Send in your voice messages. We did a, a listener Q&A last time out. We did a bit of a retro one, which was great fun, I have to say. But we'll do another, and we'll have more questions we'll collate them and then we can drop in those podcasts as and when uh, thank you simon patterson thank you valentin harunchi we now look forward to the british grand prix at silverstone uh, which is coming up this weekend nine grand prix still to go it's going to be very close all the way to valencia thank you very much for listening we will all speak to you very soon bye-bye for now Athletic.